We are starting a new sermon series this morning on the book of Colossians. Go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to think for a moment about a waterfall. You know, we live in an area that we have a a pretty prominent waterfall. Uh, It's kind of, sort of, well-known. I mean, people come from around the world to see it. I mean, High Falls, downtown Rochester, is kind of a big deal. (laughs) Okay, maybe Niagara is a little bigger deal. It's impressive, right? You look at a waterfall, and it's just, it's awe-inspiring, the volume of water that's moving, the sound that it makes, the power that is represented there. It's awe-inspiring. I love waterfalls. They just are beautiful across the landscape in certain settings, or sometimes you come, I don't know if I've ever come up on one just accidentally like Niagara Falls, but you see one like Niagara Falls, and it's just overwhelming. But did you know that every waterfall is actually determined by something different? Something much farther away from that waterfall. As my wife and I drove back from Louisville, Kentucky, we were at, uh, together for the Gospel Conference, the last one that they're ever going to have. It's very sad. But it was a great conference, and we were there. And we're driving back, and we're going through, uh, I think it was in Ohio, and we see a little sign up on the side of the road, and it said, Lake Erie Watershed. Lake Erie Watershed. Wow. That's amazing. It's like, you expect a big tourist trap, you know, a little people selling things by the side. No, there's nothing there. Nothing. It's just, you're on the highway and you're looking, there's not even a mountain, there's not a valley, there's nothing. You look around, you're like, where is it? Where's, where's the watershed? What is it that's such a big deal? See, a watershed is an area of land that usually kind of a, a hill, it can be a mountain, sometimes it's just a little bit higher area of land, and water that falls on one side flows in one direction, water that falls on the other side flows in another direction. And it struck me as we saw that sign that that area of land, part of it, when the water hit it, it would flow down to Lake Erie and eventually would go through Niagara Falls along with a lot of other water that was directed by its watersheds into the same area. And water that fell on the other side, I thought, well, down south, there's the Ohio River, which goes into the Mississippi River, which goes to the Gulf of Mexico. This is a big deal. That little sign, I mean, it was about this big. Lake Erie Watershed. What a difference. This water went to Niagara Falls, and this water goes to the Gulf of Mexico. That watershed made a huge difference in the course that that water would follow. We use this idea in life. We use it in history. We talk about watershed moments. You could probably think of some in your own life, things that made a big difference. This past week, we had two birthdays in in our family. Our daughter, Lindsay, turned 19 a week ago, and Ainsley, just yesterday, our youngest, turned nine. Those are watershed moments, the birth of a child, not just for us, but, but also kind of sort of for them. I mean, it's a big deal to be born. That's a big deal for you. It's a watershed moment. Graduations, getting your driver's license, college, marriage, first job, retirement, watershed moments. Things that make a big difference. We can talk about things throughout history. Industrial revolution. Electricity. 
I remember seeing an interview. It was an old interview with Johnny Carson. And he was interviewing, I think, like the oldest farmer they could find or something. It was probably back in the 80s or something. And he asked them, like, you, you've seen a lot. He was, he was in his 80s or 90s, and he was still actively farming his land. And it was funny because at one point he's like, well, I've mostly turned it over to my son now. And he's like, well, how old's your, your son? And he's like, oh, he's in his 70s. And they just thought that was hilarious. But they said, what's, what's the biggest farming innovation you've seen? And the guy just nonchalantly said, well, probably electricity. And everybody just laughed because we can't really imagine living through the transition to electricity. For us today, the Internet. Better or worse, we all have our own opinions on it. But has it changed things? Absolutely. These are watershed moments. You know, we live in a world that is constantly changing. And through this series, I want to explore one question. And that question is this. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world today? What does it mean to be a Christian in the world today? And the corollary with that is what is our watershed that determines who we are? What is the thing we look at that says that is what determines who I am as a Christian in the world today? What is our watershed? Christians are faced with some very difficult questions today. Culture is changing rapidly. Definitions of marriage and even gender are changing quickly. Public acceptance of and tolerance for religion is changing very quickly. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world today? Who are we? Who are we as Christian individuals? Who are we collectively as Christians as the church? What is our purpose? What makes us who we are? And you might think the answers to that are obvious, and they, in many ways, should be. But what is less obvious is how often we answer those questions in different ways without even realizing it. Like a watershed that you drive by and you don't even notice. It's so easy to forget how important the watershed of Jesus Christ is. And it's so easy to substitute something else. For 2,000 years, Christians have answered the question, who are we? How do we live as Christians in this world? In kind of two primary ways. One way is that many Christians have said we are to be different from the world. We see what this world is for, and we are against so many of those things. Another way that Christians have answered this question for 2,000 years is to say we are to be the same as or at least similar to the world. Some have understood the word love to mean complete acceptance. Therefore, if we are to show love, it means to accept the world's ways, let go of, change, redefine, or refine what we have typically believed under the guise of loving the world. So on one hand, it's we're defined by what we're against in the world. On the other hand, we're defined by what we're for or want to be like and change to be in the world. Do you see the watershed in both of them? It is exactly the same thing, and they are both wrong in the same way. The watershed for that view of Christianity is the world. The thing that defines who we are in both of those is the world. We are defined either by what we're for or what we are against. In the book of Colossians, Paul says over and over again, 
with amazingly bold language, Jesus Christ must be who or what determines who we are and what it means to be a Christian in the world today, both in their world, in their day, and in our world today. And we need to ask ourselves, what does that mean? If we really look at this and say, Jesus is what makes us different, how do we put that above and beyond anything else that we might be tempted to call a watershed or treat as a watershed in our lives? What does it mean that Jesus makes the difference? So let's come to the text of Colossians. Let's introduce this book just by reading the first two verses here. We're going to meet Paul and meet the Colossian people briefly. I want to give a little bit of background before we get into the next five verses or so. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So let's say hello to Paul. I want to make sure we understand. I know maybe if you've been in this church or some other churches, you've heard who Paul is, but it's always good to go back to the fundamentals. Who is this guy calling himself Paul that wrote this book? Paul had another name we know him by in scripture, Saul. Paul was his Greek name. Saul was his Hebrew uh, name. He grew up as a Hebrew among the Jewish people, and so that was in the Jewish name or the Jewish language. Saul is what they would have called him. A lot of people maybe have heard that Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. There's no, there's just no evidence of that. A lot of people in that culture, Jewish people, went by two names, both a Jewish name and a Greek name. When Paul is among Greeks, he tends to be called Paul. When he's among Jewish people, tends to be called Saul. Now, his background, he is Jewish. He was born of the promised people of Israel, raised in a Jewish home, taught the Jewish scriptures, but he has a unique identity as well in that somehow his father had become a Roman citizen. So he grows up with a very special privilege in the Roman Empire. Citizen was not just a badge of honor. It was like a complete different set of laws that applied to the Roman citizens that did not apply to anybody else. He had rights and privileges he could claim as a Roman citizen. We learn later on that he became a Pharisee. A Pharisee is like the Jewish people among the Jewish people. If you wanted to be really, really strong in your Jewish religion, you could become a Pharisee. He studied under a very famous Jewish rabbi, Gamaliel, one of the two most prominent Jewish people of that age. This is a big deal. This is like going to the highest possible Ivory League school in what it meant to be a Jewish person. He was zealously Jewish. To be a Pharisee meant that they wanted to change God's people and refine them, draw them back to Scripture, get rid of anything that wasn't in line with the Jewish religion. We first meet Paul in Acts 7. And it's not a good introduction. A man named Stephen is being stoned to death. That means usually pushed off a a ledge into a a little alcove in the land, and then people picked up small boulders and stones and kept throwing them at him until he is dead. And they're doing that to Stephen because he believes in Jesus Christ. And, And Acts, Luke tells us there's a man named Saul there who's overseeing things. 
He's kind of the ringleader. Saul wanted to see Stephen dead because Stephen believed in Jesus Christ. Later on in Acts chapter 22, Saul, Paul is giving his testimony. He says this, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can testify themselves. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul, Saul, had a mission. Go get those Christ-believing people, those people of the way, those Christians. Go get them, arrest them, and the implication is have them put to death. That's Paul. That's Paul writing this letter in our Christian Bible to a Christian church, acknowledging and exhorting them to trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul at a watershed moment. In Acts chapter 9, he is on his way to Damascus to carry out the mission we just read. And along the way, he is blinded by a bright light and he hears a voice from heaven. And he says, who is this? And the voice of Jesus Christ answers him, I am the one you are persecuting me. And in that moment, all of Paul's ideas about renewing the Jewish people to get them ready for the Messiah, all of that falls flat. And he says, wait a minute. If this man that was crucified has come back to life, that means that God has declared this is the Messiah. And everything changed in that instant for Paul. Paul goes away for many years. He studies. And the picture I get from scripture is that he spent those years wrestling with what he knew to be true from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, and saying, if this is all true and I believe it, and now I have come to accept that Jesus is the risen Messiah, how does this change everything? What difference does this make? This was Paul's watershed moment, and it changed everything in his life. He calls himself Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle is one sent on a mission. In the more technical way that I think Paul is using it here, it's one sent on a mission with the very authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he met Paul on the road to Damascus, gave him a mission. Paul was to go to the Gentile world. The non-Jewish speaking or the non-Jewish believing people go to the Gentiles and take the good news about Jesus as the Messiah to them. And so he's writing to the Colossians and he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. I didn't choose this. I didn't sign up for it. It is by the will of God. That phrase carries authority. An authority I can't claim. My authority as a preacher is simply in presenting to you the word of God. It is not my own authority in any way. But Christ came and called Paul for a very specific mission. And so Paul has authority as one who has witnessed the risen Lord to be an apostle. And so he's writing to this church saying, you need to listen to what I'm about to tell you because it's really, really important. We're also told that Timothy is with Paul. Paul never worked alone. 
People often get this picture of this lone ranger Christian. He's just this superhero and so amazing as a Christian. Never did he work alone. Always had groups of people he was working with, sending ahead, receiving reports back. And so he includes Timothy in this letter. In verse 2, we find out he's writing to this church in Colossae. Colossae, by the time of Paul, was actually a declining city. Economics had changed, a road had shifted from one place to another, and things weren't great, going so great in Colossae. Economically, they used to be amazing and great, but by this time, they were kind of, eh, okay. Not really who they were. And Paul calls these people receiving the letter, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. These are Christians, real Christians. Paul didn't plant this church. In fact, he had never been to the city. As far as we know, he never went to the city. But he finds out from his friend Epaphras about this church that Epaphras had started, and he's just overjoyed about their faith, and so he's writing to them. Now, Paul writes to the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a way of referring to all Christians. Some English translations call it brothers. The Greek is brothers. Walk into a room, Rochester today, say, hey guys, are you just talking to the men? No talking to the men and the women. It's all it means. People get all uptight about it. It just means everybody in the church. We see throughout this letter, these are real believers. They have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. They're holding on to that truth. But he's writing this letter because he's heard about their faith and he wants to encourage them, but also because they are struggling with something. There is a dangerous situation brewing in Colossae. So let's look at the Colossians watershed moment. Look at verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Here's Paul. He's heard about these Christians. Again, he doesn't even know them personally. And he says, I am always in prayer for you. And when I pray for you, I am just thanking God for you. I don't think that means that like 24-7, Paul's just, oh Lord, I'm praying for the Colossians, praying for them again, still praying for them. As often as he's praying, he's remembering them in prayer. And as I read through the rest of this passage, I want you to think and answer this question in your own mind. What do we learn that is true about the Colossian believers? Let's pick it up in verse 4. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul has heard this report about this this real church of sincere Christians who have come to believe in the gospel, and he's giving thanks for them. He says in verse 5, they have trusted in the true message of the gospel. These are real Christians, real church, believing the real truth of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in our place on the cross, rose from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. That's the gospel. And he says to them, I've heard that's what you're trusting in. That's what you believe. 
Verse 6, he says this gospel is bearing fruit. They were real Christians, and there's fruit overflowing in their lives. They've been changed by Jesus. He says they heard this gospel, this true gospel, from Epaphras, who was described as a faithful minister of Christ. They had a good messenger, a good teacher who brought them the true gospel. It's like Paul's reminding them, hey guys, you heard the real deal. You accepted real faith, the real gospel. Man, you had such a great start. That was their watershed moment. The gospel of Jesus Christ came to their city and they heard it and they put their faith in Jesus as their savior. And that moment changed everything about who they are and how they live in the world. And here at the beginning of the letter, Paul emphasizes this difference. He says, that's who you are, Christian. You are changed by Jesus Christ. There's a reason they needed to be reminded about how they started. It's because they are facing a very real danger of straying away from the truth that it was Jesus who was their true watershed. Throughout the rest of this letter, Paul seeks to correct things in their church. Errors that were creeping up. I'm leading a Bible study on 1 Corinthians with the men on Wednesday night. And it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians, another letter from Paul to a church, this one in Corinth, he he goes like point by point. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to do to fix it. And it's kind of easier to study because it's like, oh, here's their fault. Here's the solution. Colossians is different. Colossians is somewhat unique because Paul never comes right out and says what was wrong in Colossae. We don't get the side of the picture that says, here's the error. It would be nice to see that at times. What we see and what some have thought is that an early form of this kind of religious idea of Gnosticism is creeping into the church. Gnosticism is, is an ancient religion. It was kind of more like a cult. It was an idea that all matter is evil. Physical stuff is bad. Just be super spiritual. Focus on the spiritual. That you had to know this deeper spiritual knowledge. That's where the word Gnostic or Gnosticism comes from. So you wanted to seek these, these really informed teachers and they can explain stuff to you. And if you learn the deeper spiritual truths, then you'll be truly a spiritual person. This came into the church among Christians and looked at Jesus and said, well, because all matter, stuff is evil, Jesus really isn't truly the Son of God. And and so he can't really save you. It's a really great example, but you just have to work really hard, and then you can save yourself. That's Gnosticism. Now, here's the thing. That came about later. There's really no evidence by the time that Paul's writing this letter that that was going on in the Roman world at all. So it's possible that there were inklings of that. But we're not really sure exactly what was going on. There's a few hints that I want us to look at. Chapter 2, verse 8, he writes this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So he's saying, be careful Don't let somebody come in and and say really wise, smart things to you that sound really good and are really impressive, but they're pulling you away from Jesus Christ. Don't let that happen. 
He hints later in chapter 2 that they were struggling with some human and kind of religious regulations. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These were religious holidays, religious festivals. And evidently, some were saying, well, if you want to be a really true, super spiritual Christian, you will do these things, you will observe these things, and then there's other things that you won't touch and you won't do, and that's what makes you super spiritual. It's interesting, because I believe what the Colossians were struggling with is what does it mean to be a Christian in our world? What does that look like? And for some, it was giving into the world's ideas, accepting the teachings of the world. This makes so much sense. It's so amazing. And these teachers are so great. And I can't argue with their logic. And so we're going to accept what they're saying. And they're changing what they believe about Jesus by allowing these other teachings to come in. Others, I think, were trying to be really spiritual. They wanted to be religious. They wanted to be righteous. And they're holding on to these rules and commands. We do this. We don't do that. We eat these festivals. At the appointed time, we're so much more spiritual than those people that don't. But at the heart of both of these questions, or at the heart of both of these issues, rather, is a question. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Or do we need to add to the truth of Jesus, giving into the world and following their ideas, or following all these other religious things? And both imply that Jesus is not enough. They needed, so they thought, something more, something deeper, something more real, something more true. We don't know exactly what the error or errors were that Paul was correcting at Colossae. But here's what's amazing about this letter. We know exactly how Paul corrects those errors. And I love this because it means that whatever the error is that the church is facing, Paul had the same solution. And it still applies to us today. In this first passage, Paul has this opening prayer where he talks about their real love for the gospel, the real truth that they were believing in. Let's look at some other verses from the rest of this letter. Verses 13 through 14 of chapter 1, he says this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the focus on Jesus? This is who you are. This is what you believed. You've been redeemed, bought out of sin, purchased. and You have a new life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you skip down to verse 19 of chapter 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Some indication, some of the teaching was coming in and undermining this. Paul says, this is who Jesus is. All the fullness of God, complete deity, equal to God in every way. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. They want Jesus' hand. Oh, Jesus is great. But these other things are really good too. And so if we want to be really strong Christians, we're going to add these things too. And Paul, you should too. And so should everybody else. And he brings them back and he says, no, Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is the watershed that makes the difference. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. He says, you started with Jesus. Keep going with Jesus. Jesus is the watershed that determines the flow of our lives. Keep going with Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. It says you want to be a great Christian? You want to have the fullness that all that Christianity has? You don't have to seek anything else other than Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you have more fullness you can possibly imagine. Why would you look for it elsewhere? Verses 13 through 14 of chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He says, this is who you are in Jesus. Your sins have been taken off of you, put on the Son of God on the cross, and he died in your place. And then he rose from the dead and promises eternal life to all who believe. He talks about this resurrection then in chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It says this is who you are. Put your focus there. Don't get distracted. Verse 17, and whatever you do, chapter 3, verse 17, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see Paul's answer? It's, it's, it's like these flashing lights throughout the letter of Colossians. The thing they needed more than anything else, the difference that made them who they were, The thing that answered the question, what does it mean to be a Christian in their world and in our world today, is Jesus Christ. And friends, I know, I I get it, like the old Sunday school joke, you know, of course the the answer is always Jesus. And, And that joke almost makes light of the fact that, of the truth of that statement. We always want Jesus and. Oh, I know the gospel. I received the gospel when I was five, but now I found something so much deeper makes me more spiritual. No, it doesn't. If it's not going deeper in Jesus Christ and it's adding anything to Jesus Christ, then guess what? It is subtracting from Jesus Christ. And it is not deeper. Jesus was to be their watershed. Every decision that they made, every action they took, every attitude, every role in their lives was to be determined by the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in their place that they might be saved and rose from the grave promising eternal life. That's who they were. That was their watershed. Friends, our watershed today is still Jesus. 2,000 years have gone by since this letter was written, and yet the answer has never changed and never will. God's people, over those 2,000 years, have often run themselves ragged chasing other answers, 
other watersheds, other things to determine who we are and how we should live in this world. And so often, we're still tempted today to define ourselves by what we're against or which political party we're in or which social issue we're for or against. We said, this is what it means to be a Christian. Don't get me wrong. Being a Christian applies to those things, but that is not what it means to be a Christian. Those aren't our watershed issues. Our true watershed issue that defines everything else is Jesus Christ. So often we're tempted to act according to the world's ways. I've seen godly Christians arguing against things in the world, rightly so, and how wrong these things are, but they argue with the tools of the world. Godly people trying to stand up for God and calling people stupid idiots and insulting them and saying wrong, horrific things about them in their effort to stand up for Jesus Christ. You're not standing up for Jesus if you do that. We don't pick up the world's weapons to fight Jesus' battles. We can't just shout louder and insult others, be more aggressive and more obnoxious than anybody else. That is the world's way of winning battles. That is not Jesus. Or some Christians just give in. Go with the flow. I mean, if we want to be a witness and we want to reach our friends and neighbors, if we're still talking about sin like or things like sin, they're not going to listen to us. So let's pull that out. If we talk about Scripture and the authority of Scripture, they don't want to hear that. So let's just take that out. Let's just go with the flow of the culture. Marriage is being redefined. Gender is being redefined. So many Christians in an effort to be contextual to this world is saying, we'll let go of some of those things. But the Bible, the Word of God, from Jesus Christ, our Savior, says certain things are true and certain things are not true. And so if Jesus is our watershed, our determining issue, those questions have already been answered for us. And we don't get to change the answers to make ourselves more acceptable to the world. The answer for the Colossians is the same answer we have today. Jesus must be our watershed. Christians, I call you today to ask yourself, has Jesus made me different? If I'm looking at who I am as a Christian, am I answering that by looking to Jesus Christ? I began with the question, what does it mean to be a Christian in the world today? And 2,000 years later, our answer must be the same. And I believe one of the greatest struggles among Christians today and churches today is the same thing the Colossians were wrestling with. And that is that we give in. We replace Christ with other things. Things that might sound more religious, things that might be more acceptable to the world, it really doesn't matter which direction you go in. They're both wrong. Because our watershed is Jesus Christ. We cannot allow any substitutes to define who or what we are. Through the rest of this series, we're going to walk through this letter of Colossians. And we're going to see again and again how Paul holds up a big picture of Jesus Christ and says, keep your focus there. Don't let anyone cut in on that important truth. So I'll leave you with a question that I hope will be the challenge throughout the rest of the series. 
Is Jesus your watershed in your life that determines everything else about who you are? Is he your watershed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I imagine for the Colossians, receiving this letter for Paul was much like the things we're called to today. And I hope to challenge us with through this series. It's hard. We want to ask the questions, what about this? How does this work in this situation? What about this person? But Father, help us to start with the most important issue. Who is your son? And do we accept who he is as your son and our savior? And then are we willing to humbly submit to all that means and trust in that truth And Father, I believe there's such strength and security that comes from that hardship, yes, possibly even persecution. But Father, you have helped your people walk through those difficult times in the past when they have held on to the truth about your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray as Orchard Community Church, and I pray for our brothers and sisters around this area and around the world, May Jesus be our true watershed issue that determines every other factor in our lives and that we will commit to not allowing anything to cut in on that most important truth in our life. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the change he makes in our lives and in the world. In your name we pray, amen.